Welcome back to this California Dreaming series, the tale of California's very first insanity plea. It looks like this is going to be about four parts in total. So the next part should be coming along soon, if all goes well. We left off in part two with murder suspect William Edward Hickman being extradited back to California from the small town of Pendleton, Oregon. He is being escorted by several high-ranking law enforcement officers by way of train, and along the way, he provided two written statements. One was a full, detailed confession to the murder of Marion Parker, as well as a second written statement pertaining to the motive behind this crime. We will pick it up from there, and I want to remind you that most of the details contained in this episode are from a book written about this case entitled Not Just Evil by author David Wilson. I've developed this script based on the story and timeline in his book. However, the various official records and documents that were transcribed into the book, I've read to you word for word for this podcast. I also want to remind you of the warning that I've been providing for the series. This episode contains details involving crimes committed against a young child. Some of the details of this case are extremely graphic in nature, they are disturbing, and they may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. All right, let's get started here. This is part three, episode 181 of California Dreaming, the tale of California's very first insanity plea. An interesting side effect of Hickman's crimes was the impact it was having on the film industry. Movie production studios were just being formed when Marion's murder happened. Studio executives wanted movies to be exactly the thing that Hickman was searching for in his own life, a form of entertainment that provided a bit of a vacation from reality for an hour or two. It was designed to be immersive and entertaining. At least, that was the vision of some of the filmmakers. In fact, as a celebration of outstanding movie making, the Academy Awards had just been created less than a year before Marion was kidnapped and murdered. The media became obsessed with Hickman and his obsession, and it was splashed across the headlines that this killer even went to catch a flick the very same day that he murdered and mutilated Marion. This was the exact kind of publicity that the movie industry did not want hanging over it. And remember in part one, I mentioned that a part of the movie going experience in the late 1920s included a showing of some local newsreels. Well, this included Marion's murder and they had not a problem showing the movie going audience pictures of what Hickman had done to Marion's body. What ended up happening is some of the movie theaters began refusing to play the newsreels. And so this was becoming one of the first battles over censorship that the movie industry had with theater owners. This went against everything filmmakers and studio executives believed in when it came to their artistry. And then there was a suggestion as to how things that were depicted in the films at the time, if there were any sort of violence or criminal behavior, if there was any impact or influence in regards to what people may or may not do in real life. These are issues that would continue to be debated for the rest of the 20th century into the 21st. Anyway, so as Hickman was being escorted back to Los Angeles, District Attorney Asia Keys, remember, this is going to be his big moment in time, right? The savage criminal that he was looking for has been captured, and he is really going to want to make sure that his name is publicly attached to this. And along the way, the train would stop and allow journalists and basically anyone in the surrounding area who wanted to come and see the train that they were on to come and take a look. But Keyes, he really wasn't able to address reporters because he spent most of his time in a private drinking area. And this is still during Prohibition, so it kind of gives you an idea of the DA's overall character. The LAPD had been battered and bruised in the media over allegations of malfeasance, so Chief James Davis really needed to take charge and not allow the DA's behavior to become front-page news, too, 
as they try to get Hickman back to Los Angeles safely. He knew that hordes of reporters were going to be waiting for them at the train station in order to get a glimpse of Hickman. He also knew that there was the possibility that someone would want to do harm to Hickman as soon as he got off the train. So Chief Davis ordered that 500 LAPD officers meet the train at an undisclosed location outside of Los Angeles and that they would essentially smuggle Hickman in under the radar. Now, Chief Davis himself enjoyed all of the pomp and circumstance of successfully capturing a wanted man. But the condition that the district attorney was in, it was going to be a bad idea. And Asa Keys, he wanted to arrive in Los Angeles to the throngs of reporters and onlookers to bask in the successful capturing of Hickman and having done so so quickly. But it would not be the district attorney was smashed. Both he and their captive would have to be smuggled in quietly. So back in Hickman's hometown of Kansas City, Missouri, his family, specifically his mother, was doing everything that she could to retain the services of a good attorney for her son. The first one she tried was a gentleman by the name of Clarence Darrow, who had a pretty solid reputation when it came to defending clients charged with murder. Unfortunately for Mrs. Hickman, his caseload was pretty full, so he had to decline representing her son. The truth of the matter is that, like several others in the story, Clarence Darrow had also been bitten by the corruption bug and was barred from practicing law within the state of California. He apparently attempted to grease the palms of some of the jurors on a case that he was involved in, and he was busted. He did give her a recommendation to a colleague of his named Jerome Walsh, so with pretty much all the money that Mrs. Hickman had to spare, she hired him, and he was willing to take the case and represent her son and defend him and hopefully spare his life. And Mrs. Hickman was so grateful because up until then, until she had retained the services of Mr. Walsh, she was pretty much the only person in the entire country who was openly speaking to the media in defense of her son. Hickman's attorney advised her to cease all interviews with the media and leave everything up to him, much to her relief. And when we talk about suspected killers, there are people who come out of the woodwork who had been acquainted with the suspect, and in this case, people in the Kansas City area who grew up with him, they were astonished that he was being charged with such a heinous crime. He was known to be a little bit quirky, but overall, a nice, polite young man. And don't forget, Hickman was only 18 years old at the time, so going from quirky but nice to sadistic killer was quite a leap. The crimes with which Hickman was being charged with came with the possibility, if convicted, of being sentenced to death, which is the primary reason why Mr. Walsh decided to take on his case. He was against the use of the death penalty and often advocated for clients who were facing that very real possibility. And he knew this was going to be an uphill battle. Not only was this a murder committed against a child, and the details of the mutilation and desecration of the child's body were abhorrent, and the case had received a tremendous amount of pre-trial publicity, all of it negative. His client had confessed to the crime, and he put it all in writing too and signed it all off, official on the record. There was little to no chance of having Hickman's confession tossed out, so he had to figure out how he was going to defend this confessed killer. Walsh poured over the various written confessions that Hickman had supplied, and there was something that began to stand out to him. He thought Hickman's actions following Marion's kidnapping were kind of bizarre. How he took the little girl to the movies. He thought it was strange because it was such a risk of him possibly being caught seen with the girl, or if she decided to cause the scene herself in order to draw attention, among the other strange things that Hickman did over the course of the days that he was holding Marion captive. All of it was strange to Walsh, and after mulling it over with various colleagues and professionals in the field of mental health, the conclusion that he arrived at is Hickman must have been insane to have done all of these things that he did without any concern about the possibility of being caught. 
He must have been out of his mind. The thing is, I read to you Hickman's entire written confession. And I don't know what all of you thought about it while listening, but I thought it was exceedingly articulate and well-expressed. The only thing that stood out to me was that he didn't use very many commas, which I added in in order for me to be able to read it to you effectively. But Hickman, in his confession, explained the reasoning behind all of his actions, even being able to take Mary into the movies. He had gained her trust. She believed Hickman when he said that he was going to give her back to her family. So she wasn't going to cause a commotion or draw attention to the fact that she was in terrible trouble. The confession caused Walsh the most concern. How was he going to prove his client insane, incapable of understanding what he was doing was wrong? The only thing that he could think of in order to excuse away Hickman's powerful confession was to insinuate that he did not have an understanding of his rights, specifically his right to be able to stay silent and not say anything that might be self-incriminating. Walsh also came to believe that Hickman kind of wanted to talk about what he had done in a way as if he was sort of proud of it. So he had to make sure that his client kept his mouth shut. As soon as he got to California, he told Hickman to stop talking about the crimes that he was being charged with. Don't talk to the media. Don't talk to law enforcement. Don't talk to other inmates. Just shut up and let him do his job. But did Hickman take his attorney's advice? No, he did not. He had tried passing a message to another inmate, but one of the jailers got it before it got to the inmate. And the message read, Listen, Dale, I believe you and believe I can trust you. Give me your advice on which of these plans would be better. All the depositions aren't enough to prove me insane. I've got to throw a fit in court, and I intend to throw a laughing, screaming, diving act before the prosecution finishes their case, maybe in front of old man Parker himself. Then, to bewilder the jury before the case is ended, I'll get up and ask the judge if I can say something without my attorney butting in. Then I'll get up and give all that crap about me wanting to do some good by living. I intend to wrap Mr. Keys before this thing's over and pull some tricks on him in the crazy line. Shortly, think these things over and tell me whether or not it is best or not. See you in the morning. William Edward Hickman, alias The Fox, ha ha ha. P.S. You know and I know that I'm not insane. So yeah, Walsh has got his hands full with this guy. Now he was going to have to try and prove to a jury that one symptom of insanity is a person trying to act like they're insane. <laughs> While he was probably going to be able to find an expert that could attest to that being a possible explanation for this very incriminating note Hickman tried to pass in jail, but what are the chances that a jury is going to buy it? But Walsh came to the conclusion that he really had no other way of keeping his client from a one-way trip to the gallows. Over the course of the next several weeks, most of the days were spent getting Hickman ready for trial. He was visited by both his own attorneys as well as the prosecution and a parade of experts who were tasked with evaluating Hickman's mental health. All the while, Hickman was relatively certain that he was going to be found not guilty, and he was hoping it was going to be by reason of insanity. But in Hickman's own mind, he didn't feel that Marion's death was his fault. He still had it in his own twisted logic that the blame for her death lay squarely on her father, Perry Parker. He should have just followed his explicit instructions to not involve the police or the media. He contacted police before he received the instructions. Those were delayed by special delivery. But that is basically how Hickman has decided he was going to alleviate himself of the responsibility for Marion's murder he just stayed focused on his case and tried to figure out the best way to fool somebody into thinking you're insane. The courtroom was packed solid of spectators and journalists, everyone wanting to get a look at the killer. The presiding judge just so happened to be the same one that oversaw the case that Hickman faced the previous year for stealing money from a banking customer that was that bank where Hickman became acquainted with Marion's dad, where he was a manager. 
So Hickman was formally indicted in early 1928. This is moving along very quickly. And this is a death penalty case, too. But anyway, the clerk announced the indictment. And it still sounds a lot like it sounds today. In the Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles, indictment number 32543, filed December 22, 1927. The people of the State of California, plaintiff versus William Edward Hickman, defendant. The said William Edward Hickman is accused by the grand jury of the County of Los Angeles with the crime of murder, a felony committed at and in the County of Los Angeles, State of California, and before the findings of this indictment, as follows to wit, that the said William Edward Hickman, on or about the 17th day of December, 1927, at and in the County of Los Angeles, State of California, did willfully, unlawfully, and feloniously, and with malice aforethought, kill and murder one Marion Parker, a human being, contrary to the form, force, and effect of the statute in such case made and provided and against the peace and dignity of the people of the state of California. Following that, the case started. The first thing that happened after District Attorney Asa Keys said that the people were ready, Hickman's attorney motioned for the judge to be removed from the case. I imagine this being like a movie where there was a collective gasp from the gallery, there was murmuring, Reporters are jotting down every word. And at the time, when the motion was made, reporters started taking pictures and flashing bulbs were going off, which was not supposed to happen. As far as I know, taking pictures in court is banned. Even making sketches of witnesses and whatnot isn't allowed either. Those are supposed to be drawn from memory. But I looked it up and it said that flash photography was banned in courts in 1925, but I guess it was still happening in some of these more sensational cases. Everyone seems to be on some level either corrupt or have their own interest in mind. So being on trial like this is a good opportunity for attorneys and judges alike. So yeah, the judge was not pleased when Hickman's attorney, Walsh, made this motion for the judge to be recused. And he asked him on what grounds should the judge be removed from the case and apparently at some dinner event, the judge was overheard expressing his opinions regarding the chances of Hickman and his attorney being able to make the case for insanity and for a jury to actually buy it was pretty much slim to none. In addition to that, the judge was also overheard saying that it would take a very, very short time for Hickman to be convicted and executed. But the judge ruled on the motion and said that he was not going to be biased and denied it. But Hickman's attorney pressed on insisting that this matter needed to be addressed by someone other than this judge. After more consideration, the judge figured that it might be best for him to be recused so this matter not be brought up on appeal. So he went ahead and recused himself, and court was dismissed for the day. That was a tiny win for Hickman, and the district attorney realized that this wasn't going to be as slam dunk as he thought it was going to be. While Hickman's attorneys were able to get over that hurdle, they still needed to figure out if they were going to be able to prove to a jury that their client was insane at the time that the crimes were committed. The whole insanity thing wasn't actually all that old at the time. The precedent-setting case, commonly known as the McNaughton ruling, was less than 100 years old at this time. Whether or not a defendant appreciated the wrongness of his or her actions at the time that he or she committed the crime that they were being accused of. But the whole field of studying mental illness was still kind of new. And it had not even been considered yet in a California court, but there was a formal ruling about it that pertained to cases in California and it read, Has a party sufficient mental capacity to appreciate the character and quality of the act? Did he or she know and understand that it was a violation of the rights of another and in itself wrong? If he or she had the capacity thus to appreciate the character and comprehend the possible or probable consequences of his or her act and knew that if it was wrong, he or she is responsible to the law for the acts thus committed. And if not the burden of proof is on the accused, it is incumbent upon him or she 
to establish by a preponderance of evidence that he or she was insane at the time of committing the charged act. Hickman was going to be California's first case where his attorneys were set to try and prove that he was legally insane at the time that he murdered Marion Parker and therefore could not be held criminally responsible. The problem is, is they were pressed for time and they didn't have a whole lot of money to work with either. It does help for us to understand that during this period, the impact forensic psychology may have had in a criminal trial was not really understood by the general public. In fact, most people with the average level of education had no idea what the field of forensic psychology was all about, much less why they would have to have an understanding of how this may or may not play into the culpability of a criminal defendant. So these were tremendous hurdles to overcome, especially since at the time, and possibly even now, a jury may have been influenced already by the media, the coverage of the case, and considering the details of what Hickman was being charged with. And there was a very well-articulated written confession. The jury just wasn't likely going to side with the defendant, period. So Hickman's defense was going to have to prove to that jury that he was basically out of his mind and not thinking as rationally as even a violent criminal may have the ability to think. His state of mind was beyond having any grasp on what was right and what was wrong. So Hickman's attorneys were talking to as many people as they could who knew Hickman before and leading up to the crime, including friends and family and anyone that he interacted with in his previous dealings within the justice system to help try to paint a portrait of a man who had even less ability to reason than the most dysfunctional people in the community. It was not going to be easy. People just weren't as willing to consider mental illness as being a factor when weighing the guilt or innocence of a defendant as they may be today. Usually we find the burden to be on the prosecution to prove their case. And here, the only thing that is going on is that Mr. Hickman wanted money, period. He kidnapped Marion Parker in order to get that money by way of ransom. When things didn't go his way, he murdered the child and managed to arrange the meeting with Perry Parker and was able to pose Marion in such a manner that Perry was tricked into believing his daughter was alive and got the money away despite having already murdered the child. This was all about greed and he killed Marion for reasons of self-preservation. But in this case... The burden fell on the defense to try and prove that Hickman had no ability to develop the intention to harm Marion, and therein lies the insanity. And like many court cases today, it was going to come down to a battle of the experts. And when it comes to a defendant who is indigent, like many are, their defense is only going to be able to afford so much. While the prosecution has virtually unlimited resources to hire the best and most renowned experts available, which is what happened in this case. Hickman's defense were only able to present three experts to assert that he was insane and therefore not criminally responsible. While on the flip side of that, the prosecution hired eight very well-paid experts to come and testify that Hickman was in full control of his faculties when he committed the murder. Even though Judge Hardy did not want to be recused, he was, and in came Judge James Trabuco. And he had a reputation for being fair and very familiar with criminal law. But this time around, it included Hickman's plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Remember, there are going to be no precedents in trials like this in California to refer to, hence the title of the podcast. So the judge explained, and he wanted to be clear, what exactly that meant to the jury. If they found him not guilty or not responsible for the crime because of insanity, that means that he will not face any legal consequences for his crimes. He also said that Defendants are presumed to be sane unless proven otherwise. So because this was going to not only be a precedent-setting case in California, it inherently weakens a conviction when it comes to the appeals process and reversals by higher courts. And then there was the issue of the way the law was written 
when it came to guilty and not guilty. The plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, it doesn't say that you are not guilty of the crime because you were insane at the time it was committed. So you technically are guilty of committing the crime because at the end of the day, you are saying that you did it, but you're just not responsible criminally. It's not an option to plead guilty by reason of insanity because as it is written, you can't be both. So in Hickman's case, the judge ruled that anything that had to do with insanity would take place during the defense's presentation and the burden of proof was ruled to be on the defense as well. And because of that, one of the most unusual things that has ever happened in courts happened. The defense was going to have to go first. The judge wanted the insanity issue settled so that they can move forward from there. They would present their arguments that Hickman was insane, and once they were done, it would then be up to the judge to decide whether or not he was and rule for the trial to proceed or to end there. Of course, getting to go first was a huge advantage for the defense. Like, this just never happens, right? The prosecution always gets the first punches in with their presentations. And for this case, there were mountains of damning evidence against their client, including a number of confessions. If they had gone first, it would have been nearly impossible for them to prove insanity. So what they were going to have to do was take away the prosecution's hardest hitting pieces of evidence and present them first. That way, they could massage it all into what was going to be most beneficial towards their client. And they came out swinging. The first thing the defense put up were the pictures taken by a law enforcement of Marion. I've described the condition of her body in great detail. I know it's been a little bit, but I don't think we need to review. Yeah, he threw up all those pictures one by one for the court to see exactly what happened to her. And for the entire presentation, there were gasps and audible and emotional reactions throughout. And then one juror passed out. So Judge Trabuco called it a day. In day two, the first thing up was confession number one. Why would the defense want to put up their client's own confession? Well, it's going to be put out there anyway for all to see, with every single eloquent word on the record implicating Hickman in everything. So the defense in taking it first would have the chance to talk about how deliriously insane this man was to have done this. It's a smart move because you know the prosecution is going to say that this is the work of an exceptionally evil human being. That can get sunk into a juror's mind pretty easily and might not ever be overcome. It may even convince a jury to convict based solely on the depravity of the crime. Hickman's attorney wanted the jury to look at everything he did all at once, but to be like, okay, look, what kind of sane person does this? Nobody. So as he spoke to the jury and the various aspects of the confession, he could read a section of it and then ask the jury, who but an insane person? It's so obvious that he's crazy. The actions of a madman. And it was an effective strategy. But when I think about the confession, I can see it swinging both ways. Like, for example, sewing Marion's eyelids open in order to make it appear that she was awake. Is that evil genius or is that bloody mad? I don't know. You could frame it both ways. The first confession was followed up by the second confession. This one was about his motives. And they took all of this information and painted a picture of Hickman being a completely insane individual. On day three of Hickman's trial, that is when the defense started calling witnesses to the stand. First up was Hickman's father. Of course, he was there to try to talk about the family and to try to elicit sympathy. He brought out the trifecta, poverty, divorce. And what do you think the third one is? Strict religious beliefs. I feel like family feud here. We asked 100 people who lied to get out of jury duty. Name something you think would keep a defendant charged with murder from being sentenced to death. Top answers on the board. And the defense was going to go hard on this particular one, religion. 
he was going to tie that directly into the insanity plea. That it was the strict religious upbringings is what sent Hitman down the road to insanity. It might be a substantial risk depending on the religious makeup of the jury. The defense also entered into evidence almost a dozen depositions from people acquainted with Hickman back in his hometown. Their statements were read to the court and would be part of what they would use to determine whether or not Hickman was insane. I guess this would have been a cross-section of family and friends, teachers, and things like that. And then over the course of the next several days, Hickman's attorney focused in on expert depositions regarding various areas of mental health particularly during Hickman's senior year in high school, where he was described as being somewhat off. Because, and the reason for this was because he wasn't into girls. He didn't try to talk to them. In fact, he shied away from girls. And yeah, I guess for the average heterosexual teenage boy, it might be. And unfortunately, as Hickman's attorney was reading all of these depositions onto the record... It was clear from the looks on the faces of the jurors that their minds were wandering off, hoping for a break soon so they could get back to playing Best Fiends. I'm just kidding. Yeah, the jurors were totally spaced out on these depositions. The defense knew that no matter how much they were going to be able to put out there for the jury while they were making their case, the prosecution had all the time in the world to make sure they have everything ready when it was their turn. As Prosecutor Asa Keys watched and listened to the defense case, he barely objected to anything in regards to the depositions because he knew the jury's minds were off somewhere else. In other words, he knew that they couldn't care less. No, the thing he was interested in was the expert testimony witnesses. That is what this case is going to hinge on, sane or insane. But Keyes wasn't worried about facing off with the defense over this issue because he already thought it sounded ridiculous as it was. So he just let the defense team have at it. The first doctor talked about Hickman's physical health. He said that Hickman had a disorder of his natural growth. I don't know. I'm just telling you what it says in the transcripts. I've just edited it down to specifics. And the way things were said in the early 1900s is a lot different than today. And this kid does not sound very healthy, but I guess when you're talking about the 1920s, it's kind of like the 2020s. Apparently, there were diseases rampant everywhere. The doctor who examined him said that his circulatory system was inadequate. He had low metabolism. He had low blood pressure. He had dysfunction of his vasomotor system, glandular disturbances, arthritis, fecal infection, I did not look that up, inflammation of the brain, perhaps attributed to meningitis. So the attorney asked, are these physical conditions characteristic of dementia praecox, which I looked it up and it's also called premature dementia, and then eventually evolved into schizophrenia? Yes, the doctor attributed all of these physical conditions as being indicative of this mental condition. The exact quote said, This boy's body condition is very characteristic of that mental disease. Which, I know this is 1927, but it's still interesting how the mind and the body used to be linked more intimately when it comes to diagnosing mental health issues. I mean, just because you have high blood pressure doesn't mean you're going to have bipolar disorder. In David Wilson's book, he wrote, In the early days of psychiatry, dementia praecox was the clinical term used to describe patients who believed that they were the victims of demonic possession. Carl Jung published the first detailed studies of this condition, stating the delusion was the first associated with physical symptoms that reinforced the patient's belief that their body was being manipulated by outside forces. So that makes a little bit more sense. Attorney Walsh was trying to argue that his client's Christian values had created the illusion that his criminal behavior was being influenced by the devil. Another expert witness provided testimony as to Hickman's mental health, specifically that he was insane on the day that he kidnapped and murdered Marion. 
In David Wilson's book, the testimony was transcribed as follows. Question. Doctor, could you determine the inception and nature of the defendant's hallucinations? Answer. In this particular case, this boy's feelings towards religion characterized the nature of his hallucinations. As to just when he crossed the line into actual psychosis, it's difficult to say. Why is that? It was religion. When this boy was very young, he lived in Arkansas, a rural community. Aren't they all rural in Arkansas? I don't know. I'll have to fact check that. Where they had religious revival meetings. At these meetings, they would shout and get up and tell spiritual experiences and become ecstatic. Oh, you mean church? They're going to church. That's what church sounds like, right? Spiritual experiences, shout, ecstatic. Okay. Just me? No? Everybody? Okay. Who is this doctor? Okay, so they're going to church, shouting, yelling, blah, blah, blah. So far, so normal. The boy described them to me. Okay, this is what the doctor said. This boy was not able to stand the resultant emotional strain because of his inherited instability. So what I'm hearing is, is that he didn't want to go to church because he was tired and wanted to stay in bed. Got it. The doctor continued. He was terrified by the thought of hell. Religion is sucker to the soul. Okay, this word sucker, succor, sucker. That's what the doctor said. I was like, I don't know what this smart word is. So I'm going to look it up in my head. I want to practice pronouncing it. It's spelled S-U-C-C-O-R. I was like, succor, succor. I looked it up and it's just like sucker. That's it, like the candy sucker. And it means to aid or to help, but not in the verb sense. Like I'll get help is a noun. I'll help is the verb. But okay, stop with the grammar, but that's what that word means in case you didn't know it. Religion is aid to the soul. But the little boy, it became a fearsome thing. Okay, so what I'm hearing here is that he was scared of hell. Well, duh, sounds accurate to me in terms of how people feel about hell. Fear would be in the top 10 list of answers. Name something that hell would cause you to feel. Fear. Yeah, okay, so this doctor has so far established that Hickman didn't want to go to church when he was a kid. He didn't like it, and he's afraid of hell. Man, this guy. We all could have been doctors back then. Anyway, this is what it said next. It aggravated the terror instilled by the mother's manacle night maneuvers with hatchet and butcher knife. Okay. That's what he's going to do. He's going to throw his mom under the bus. He lobbed the Eric and Lyle abuse defense to see if it would stick. Blaming mom. I mean, I don't know if she abused the kids or not. Was Hickman covered in hatchet and butcher cuts? If there was, it wasn't in these doctor's notes. So I'll let you all think what you want when it comes to blaming his actions on his mother's abuse. It's usually neither here nor there for me because there are lots of kids who are abused and they turn out not to be murderers. Next, the good doctor said, He went home and prayed for hours, pleading with God for mercy. I mean, don't we all? Lord, help me. With the advent of puberty and its accompanying pathological and psychological changes, oops, physiological or psychological? Oh, psychological changes is not physiological, it's psychological. They're horny, basically. I went over all that just to say they're horny. It was no longer possible for this boy with his inherited weaknesses to withstand this great emotional strain. Okay, so what I'm getting here is that Hickman hit that age that boys get to, the body's changing, hormones in droves, it was no longer possible for this boy to withstand this great emotional strain, so he needed to murder and mutilate Marion. Oh, yeah, that old puberty defense. Got it. Oh, bullshit. Okay, so what Hickman's attorney was getting at with all this rigmarole 
is that his client was battling against his body's dementia precox, which by nature of its onset, was fighting to keep its symptoms in control of Hickman. In other words, Hickman's own body was fighting against the disorder. And so, since he had to be in this battle, in Hickman's own mind, he created an imaginary world where God picked him to become a minister. He deluded himself into thinking that God called him and said, Want to play Best Fiends? I'm just kidding. God didn't say that. God called upon him, telling him that he needed to do this if he was going to win. An excerpt from Wilson's book reads, He, he being Hickman, had the idea that God had spoken directly to him in response to feelings he believed were influenced by the devil was the internal conflict that led to Hickman's insanity. That's insane, all right. Name something else you heard today that was totally insane. This podcast. Okay, y'all need to stop acting silly here. We need to get back on track onto this episode, please. Thank you. Prosecutor Keyes said, I object. Just a fancy way of saying the devil made me do it. A ludicrous claim. But the judge was like, nah, I like it. I like the way he said it. Overruled. That's the last of it, I promise. There is one thing included in the book that is kind of important that came into trial at this point, but it is lengthy. So what I'm going to do is start the next part with that information. What I will say is, is that it is a statement, a very long one, from Hickman himself while awaiting trial that illustrates his quest to prove that he was insane. And I'll remind you in the next part where this statement came in, you know, that section where you all were playing around on Family Feud. Right after that, his defense attorney would submit this statement to the court and have it read into the record, and it is Hickman's plea for his life. And just as before, the prosecutor could see that the jurors were bored. And so was the defendant, which wasn't helping his case at all. It might very well put you to sleep when I read it to you. But there was a lot of expert testimony that broke things up a little bit. You know, both sides will bring on their set of doctors and specialists who will each insist that their medical opinion is the right one. But that didn't even seem to be the most amusing thing about the battle of the experts. Because while the adversaries are usually prosecutor versus defendant, sometimes experts are made to concede certain things that may or may not have an impact on their findings. We've seen experts get discredited before because they were outmaneuvered by the opposing team. But have you ever seen an expert discredit himself? Me neither. Until now. And it's glorious. This information comes from the court transcripts author David Wilson retrieved and published in his book. It's the examination and follow-up cross-examination of one Dr. R. O. Shelton. And he is one of the defense team's mental health professionals who was there to testify to Heckman's insanity. Defense attorney Walsh asked, did you, as a result of these examinations and observations that you made, come to any opinion with reference to Hickman's mental condition? Shelton, I did. Walsh, will you kindly state to the jury, doctor, what that opinion is? Shelton, he is suffering from dementia praecox, one of the worst types of insanity. He has one of the worst forms of this type. It is a paranoia type delusions of grandeur. It is technically known as megalomania. He is a megalomaniac. So that was just one section or excerpt from Shelton's testimony. So when the prosecutor picks it up from the cross-examination, the book starts from just about the point where Dr. Shelton does the obliterating of his own testimony with his own testimony. Prosecutor Keys. Hickman is incurable. Dr. Shelton. Incurable, no chance of getting well, only deterioration now. Keys, do you think, doctor, if this boy had appeared before you and you were sitting on a lunacy board, that you would have diagnosed his case as you have before this jury and recommended that he be confined to an institution? 
Shelton, I would have sent him up in the first 30 minutes. Keys, isn't it true that all cases of dementia precox, the patient is rather silly and childish? Shelton, no, it is not true. Keys, you were in the jail there and talked with the defendant for the purpose of trying to help him out of his troubles, weren't you? Shelton, no, sir. I went in the jail to make a diagnosis, and I aided the doctor and tried to aid your alienist, which means psychiatrist. I got them in and instructed them, one or both of them, no, sir. Keys, isn't it true you stated a moment ago that, in your opinion, this defendant developed his form of insanity when he was about 12 years of age? Shelton, that was the beginning of it. I don't know where he was actually insane. That was the beginning of the original idea. Keys. What do you mean, doctor, by the term malingering? How do you define the term? Malingering? Yes. Pretending. Pretending? Simulation. Do you think that a patient who was malingering could deceive you? Shelton. Well, I do not believe a case of dementia precox could. I would not say that I am infallible. I don't want. We all are fallible. Dreamers, start paying close attention here. We all are fallible. I don't know that I am in this court, but I believe I am here. Wait, what? Prosecutor Keys. Wait, what? I'm just kidding. He said... You do not know that you are here? Shelton. No, I believe I am in this courtroom, but I may be mistaken. Keys. Well, that is somewhat of a delusion, isn't it? Shelton. It might be. Keys. You have delusions yourself? Shelton. It might be that it is a delusion. Okay, dreamers. Here we have another first, the first time a doctor called himself delusional from the witness stand. Okay, let's keep going. Keys. Don't you believe, doctor, that you might have had some delusions with reference to your statement that this man has dementia precox? Shelton. I do not believe so, but that is my opinion. This is my honest opinion after a close, careful examination. Keys. In line with your reasoning... You might be mistaken about that. You may believe it, but it might not be true. Shelton, I might be mistaken about anything. All right, all right, you there. Go fetch the gallows. I'll wake the executioner. Come on, men, let's go. My God, this doctor should have just hanged Hickman himself. So to refresh, Shelton said, I might be mistaken about anything. Keys. What? And this time he did actually say what? Shelton, I might be mistaken about anything. Keys. Oh, I suppose, doctor, I might question you here for two or three days, which I am not going to do, and you would still hold the same opinion that you believe the defendant to be suffering from dementia precox. That is true, isn't it? Hey, dreamers, here we go again. Shelton. Well, that is my opinion now. I don't know what it will be three days from now. Keys. You don't know what your opinion will be three days from now? Shelton. No. Keys. Well, I guess that's all. Did you get the hangman? Where are those bloody hangmen? Call all the townspeople and the media. Can you imagine having a lawyer like that? Telling you, like, oh, I might change my opinion in three days. I don't know how I'm going to feel. Maybe it'll be some bad clams that I ate or something. Ridiculous, right? And this guy's a doctor? Standards low, I guess. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and end this here. I know I like my episodes being closer to an hour. And it's only 49 minutes and some seconds. But I'm not completely 100% myself yet. And I'm a little bit fatigued. And um, you probably hear some changes in my voice. I'm kind of hoarse today, too. 
So I'm going to go back to writing. I'm making a lot of progress. I'm actually, I think it's done being written. I just have to record it. That's all. Um, anyway, thank you all so much for all of the, the well wishes and God, I had such an awful week. Um, and all of the bumps up in Patreon and all of your help. Like that was amazing. I didn't even expect that from you guys are, you guys are my family. That's it. Plain and simple. You're my family and you're there for me when I need you and it's priceless. So until next time, sweet dreams. And why don't we go ahead and just take this out with something a little bit more upbeat from Blue Dot Sessions. Mm-hmm.